Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles, I am the host of the Sendcast and I'm also the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the Sendcast is simple, we want to reach lots of people, we want to help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability and we want to make the world more inclusive. The main focus of the podcast is to increase knowledge of teachers in schools, but the podcast supports all professionals working with children or young people with SEND, and it benefits parents and carers of all children. This week, I have Abigail Hawkins as my guest. Abigail is an SEN consultant and runs the Sensible Senko, which is a community on Facebook which does so much more. And on this week, we are discussing the labelling lurgy, the need to label everything. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We help schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We help schools to show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages from early years up to post 16 with our employability and life skills. If you are a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where people isn't making progress, we can help. Did you know you can use B Squared's assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money, and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing the pros and cons of labels. My guest is Abigail Hawkins. Abigail is an SEN consultant from Senko Solutions. She also runs Sensible Senko, a networking support group for Senkos. Abigail has been a Senko for over 25 years, covering a variety of subjects and phases. And until recently, she was a chair of governor for three schools and works with software companies to help develop software to support SEN. Welcome to the show, Abigail. Thank you very much, Dale. So, I hate labels and t-shirts, but that's not what we're discussing. We have discussed labels before on this podcast. They have their pros and cons, but there are also lots of misunderstandings of these labels. Yeah, definitely. We can discuss labels in clothes if you like, because there's always an itchy one, isn't there? I, I don't mind the fabric ones. They started putting those really thin or papery ones. Oh, no, oh they crinkle, don't they? I like them yeah. printed on clothes. You notice? Yes. I tend to get those now, but anyway. Unless you're trying to work out what size it is and it's worn off. <laughs> when it's been through the wash a few times. Yes. Anyway, I call it the labelling lurgy. So I, I really do feel that we we kind of stuck in a, a, a bit of a black hole to a certain extent in that labels can be incredibly helpful. They let me know which shelf of my bookcase I need to go to to go and find some information. They let me know what search term to stick into Google to go and get something that's up to date. But they're also really, well, they're their own black hole, I suppose. They're quite blind-ended that when you've got a label for someone, people tend to stereotype that label. And we really shouldn't be doing that. Um, And I think, you know, from an SEM perspective, we talk about, we, we don't need a diagnosis. We don't need a label for a child to meet their needs. We identify that they are struggling with reading. We put in an intervention to support reading. We don't need to label that as dyslexia or 
whatever else may be causing that. However, for the teachers to know how to support that child, we have to give it a label. For the parents who want to understand the child, we end up having to look for a label. And sometimes for that child to be able to go, oh, yeah, that's why I'm struggling with that. They need that coat hook that's labeled to be able to go, and that's because of my dyslexia or that's because of my ADHD. So they have their uses, but they also have this checklist tick box type mentality attached to them of tick, tick, tick. Oh, yeah, you've ticked seven out of 10 there. You must be whatever it is, which is quite frustrating. Yes. Labels give us all of those things. When you're trying to explain, rather than having a very, very long-winded conversation around why your child's struggling with reading, you can say he's got dyslexia and they can go, cool, go home, Amazon, book dyslexia. Ooh, I'll read that. And it gives you a world. Where it comes into danger is when you have a five-bullet point list of what dyslexia is. And you go, that's dyslexia. And you go, oh. So um, dyspraxia. Yep. I was very much, oh, it's a clumsiness thing. It's not, but it's clumsiness. And then I actually realized there's a whole executive function thing and a load of other stuff. I'm going, I had no idea. Someone told me what dyspraxia is once, which they focus on the physical aspects of clumsiness and walking into things. And that's what I took as, oh, dyspraxia is that. So someone's misunderstanding and someone explaining that term to me made me completely misunderstand that term. It, it gets boiled down to the basics, doesn't it? And then once you've only got the basics, we tend to forget that everyone is an individual. Yes. And the ASC and that lovely spectrum. So an autistic person is, so like Rain Man. Yes, just like every autistic person's just like Rain Man. Every, no, okay, so, hey, okay. And you get these rules, yeah? So he must do this, this, this. And you get some of that going, no, 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 no. Actually, all those, none of them apply to me. All those standard things do not apply to me. I've got all of these. And that's the thing is when I, 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 there's a Senko, which I wasn't a fan of, was doing a bad job. And we were having lots of conversations about my nephew and discussing them and going, right, so what training has the school had on autism? And uh, she went, well, I do a session this year. Okay, what's that? Oh, uh, it's just, I, I've done it. Okay, so what training have you had? Well, I know about autism. It's like, okay, so what have you? And basically, it, she'd been regurgitating the same bit of information about autism for the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. And it was the very much, this is what autism looks like. They will be able to do this, but not this. But the very most typical, and that was their training. Yeah. So that, to them, that's autism. And it's always, again, all of those ticks, especially for ASC, are generally based on that boy's presentation. Yeah. I, a, and I was like, further that, the white male presentation. Yes, because it's very, very different. There's a, a little snippet at the front of Daniel Sobel's book, The Inclusive Classroom for British Law. That's what it's called, Bright Yellow Book. And in that one, he, he presents three children and gives you a kind of list of their characteristics. And you look at it and you, automatically we go to stereotyping. That's human nature. We do that. And you read each one of them and you think, that one's typically ADHD or that one's typically dyslexia and that one's typically autism. And then you go into the next bit and you discover that actually they've all got the same diagnosis, but they're all presenting differently. 
or that they've all got a different diagnosis, but they present differently. And he's, sorry, present the same. And it's, yeah. it's fascinating to see it the way he's presented it with these, these three children. I can't remember what their names are. These three children in the front of that book. And it's, like I say, those labels, for me, I do find them useful because I know where to file things. I have a website where people share resources that would support a student with autism with a social story. Where do I stick that? Because I can't, you know, on my website, I've got enough flipping tabs on there. I don't want to have to add another 15, 16, 17, 18 tabs onto it. So to be able to put it under autism, subtab, social stories, is fantastic. If I've then got to start going down, oh, actually, it's a story that supports students with whatever, it just becomes very complicated. Same thing if I want to go to my bookshelf. I organize my books. I, I, I love books, by the way. I have far too many of them. I have rooms full of them. I have a library. But I organize them by SEM need because if I'm ever doing anything, like I'm about to do some work on dysgraphia or handwriting difficulties, I will want to go and grab all six or seven books that I have on dysgraphia in one go. So they're sitting there. They're called dysgraphia or handwriting difficulties because you know, we don't need the label, the technical label. We can have that. But I also know that I need to dip into the dyspraxia book because dyspraxic children will also have handwriting difficulties. I probably also need to dip into my autism book because my autism books will have information on children who struggle to grip a pen because of the sensory overload or working on a piece of paper or do they need to do it on a whiteboard? So it's useful for that first bit, but it's not so useful when I have to use my brain and work out where else do I need to go with it as well. And like I say, as you know, Senko, I go into classrooms, I go and advise people, I'm advising my teachers. They want to go and do their own research on how do I meet the needs of this child? They need a word to go and look for because there's nothing worse than opening up Google and staring at that blank page thinking, what on earth do I put in the search terms? What am I going to put here? Because you get some very dodgy things come up if you're not careful. Yes. <laughs> One of the things I, is where this all starts to fall apart is when you have the word comorbidity. Oh, so when you have that child who is autistic with ADHD, it can you can literally look at go no 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 oh they yeah they have that and you look at ADHD and go no 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 but they have that oh so they're probably neither well no because of it all overlaps and cancer eats the end it's a bit of both and that can get because people will look at that list of five bullet points for autism and go no they don't meet that they're not autistic it's like no it's a spectrum and. Also, you, I think some children with autism will learn how to mask without realizing they're masking. They'll, they will hide things. They want to appear normal. They'll mask things. So you've got to do a lot of work to unpick those things. And when you're doing these things, can they do this? We look at them and go, well, no, they're doing that fine. Yes, it appears they're doing it fine, but you don't know what's going on behind the scenes that's causing them to look like they're doing it fine. Yeah. Very early on in my career, I had a student who had actually had an official diagnosis of MLD, which is mild learning difficulties or moderate learning difficulties. Quite unusual to get it as an official diagnosis. And we had an advisory teacher come in who kept saying their dyslexia, their dyslexia. She kept referring to their dyslexic needs. 
and I say it was quite early on in my teaching career and my brain was like, but they've got a moderate learning difficulty. So they find reading and spelling and organization and maths difficult anyway. How can you be telling me it's their dyslexic difficulties? It's that comorbidity. And she's like, but they can have both. And my brain just took absolutely ages to process this. How? <laughs> How can they? And, you know, that's me. You know, I'm experienced now and I understand it now. But at the time, it was it was totally brain frying with how surely the, the, the moderate learning difficulty label overtakes the specific learning difficulty label, if you like. And that, that's the thing where labels come in is those labels, so MLD, SLD, PMLD, those labels unlock money. Oh, yeah. So those labels are very good for unlocking money to support them. And it's make sure you put them in the right order and things like that to get the most money. So, yeah, we have labels which help us research. We have labels which unlock money. And it's not every label will automatically get money. No, 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 no. <laughs> so it's not a guarantee. If you have a label, you get money or you get this or you get that. It doesn't always work like that. We also have, so the code of practice talks about the four broad areas. And yes. I very often have to kind of respond to this question in the, the network groups and support groups. So our four broad areas are cognition and learning, sensory and physical, communication and interaction. And social, emotional, mental <laughs> Thank health. You I do them in a different order, but yes. yes. Well, I was doing them in the order I remembered. But yes, yeah, social, emotional and mental health. And that's okay, but actually, if you, I'm a class teacher. Just imagine I'm sitting there as a class teacher and you give me my SEN list or register for the year. You're identifying my class of students for me and you write down there, I have got Fred. I always use Fred as an example. I've got Fred in my class. He's got a cognition and learning need. Do you know what? As a teacher, that tells me absolutely nothing. Because I don't know whether you mean he's got a moderate learning difficulty. I don't know whether he's got a severe learning difficulty. I don't know whether they've got dyslexia or whether it's dyscalculia. I don't know whether you've categorized ADHD under the specific learning difficulty bit that falls under cognition and learning. I actually know absolutely nothing from those broad areas of need. So I, I, you know, it's the bit of the code of practice I absolutely hate because it doesn't help me when I'm sharing information. God, you're going to say something on that. I, I, I like and don't like them. So, yeah, I, I, I see lots of posts going, where does this fit into the four broad areas <laughs> of need? And I kind of see them as two separate things. And I think the reason I did the four broad areas of need is I think some schools would previously identify maybe something like autism mm -hmm. and go, oh, well, that's a difficulty in this one area and pigeonhole and only support that one area. Yeah. Whereas the four broad areas gone, yes, their main area might be in here, but actually are they struggling in the other areas because of that? So that's what I, I see it as a completely separate layer to making sure we're supporting them. So you have the, ASC, dyslexia, ADA, all that. Yeah, that is the, this is them. The four broad areas for me is, okay, are they struggling? Is their diagnosis impacting their cognition and learning? Yes. 
Is it, are they by their diagnosis, not their label, by their actual diagnosis and how it impacts them affecting their SEMH? Yes. Is it impacting their communication interaction? Yes. Due to their anxiety, they won't actually interact with anyone. Yes. Is it impacting their sensory and physical? Well, yeah, sometimes they get overloaded and they were air defenders. So, yes. So, okay. So, with autism, I can tick all four boxes. So, and that's the thing. It's making sure some people, and I've seen autism, someone ticked it as SEMH only. Okay. And only support that. And they're like, no, it's support the child, not the label. And that's the big thing with this. Yeah, and it, it goes down to that we don't need a diagnosis to support students. We identify their needs. So a student with dyslexia, which traditionally would fall under cognition and learning, may not necessarily need any support or provision or intervention within there, but they need support with their social and emotional skills or their social and emotional mindset around I can do this. I can have a go at this. I am able to do this to the best of my ability. So it's identifying that and breaking them down. I don't think it helps that when you fill in census, we still use the traditional 13 categories. So they're yep. not under the four broad areas. So we've got everybody reading the code of practice. If, you know, these Senkos come along, they read the code of practice. Well done, chapter six. And they look at the four broad areas. And they start categorizing the students underneath those. And then they get this message from the front office team with, you need to fill in census and those four areas don't exist. What do you want me to put them under? Yep. We still traditionally use the, the original 13 categories, of which one of them really irritates me. Oh, which one? Which one? Other. an <laughs> 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 other. <laughs> I don't fit in anything. I'm other. So we have NSA, which is no specific assessment, which is great if you've got a a kid where their needs are only just manifesting. We're not really sure. We haven't done any assessments yet, but we know that that gut instinct, something's not quite where it should be. We can use that one. We get a couple of percent of children NSA. shouldn't be on there permanently. I should never see a child go on as NSA in reception and still be there by the time we get to year nine. We should have identified something before then. But it's other that really irritates me because it's it's like, okay, what on earth is other? A special educational need, we should surely be able to identify where it sits. And if you're having to tick other, very often I find it is used for children with medical needs. That's not SEN. Children who've got an access arrangement for an exam who don't receive anything else for anything else. That's not a special educational need, so we shouldn't be ticking other there either. Or children who are EAL, which is also not a special educational need. The only time I've ever had to use other was for a student who had experienced a brain injury. So they'd been knocked over by a car, they'd experienced a brain injury. And they were undergoing some investigations to see whether or not the behaviours that we were seeing were going to be permanent or whether they were just temporary as a result of the swelling on the brain. So they were okay to attend school, but the brain was settling and all the rest of it. To use other at that point, because from an educational perspective, I did need to put stuff in place for them. There was a special educational need there. 
but I couldn't have fit them into any of those other categories. There was there was nothing else that really fit them at that time. Because where you have that MLD and SLD and PMLD, then you don't really diagnose someone as PMLD. It, they will have another diagnosis which puts them into that criteria. But that diagnosis could be an MLD, SLD, and PMLD. It's the, the severity, the impacts, there's various things. So those ones I find almost, they're, they're census information. So actually, they're the least helpful. Yeah. 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 And they're, they're kind of predetermined. They're medically diet. They're medically determined. I think yes. the best way. And that, you know, that brings us on to kind of like this um, medical versus social model of disability. So, you know, a medical model says I am disabled. The social model says the environment is disabled. It is not fit for you to access it. So it, it's changing that perspective. And SEN, special education needs within schools, is the social model. It is not about you have got a label, you have got you have got X, Y, Z, therefore you need to change this. It is, ah, we've identified a need and this is what we need to do to meet your need. So we're not changing yes. the person, we're changing the environment, the delivery, we're changing what's around them. That's not to say there are some elements of that person that we perhaps need to change occasionally. If we have socially unacceptable behaviour, we would hope that we would modify some of that. But generally, it's not about changing the person. It's about changing the approach and changing the environment. That social model, not the medical model. And that is, is you can change, but it is when they leave school, they've got to move into a world which still hasn't changed. So there is that the school should change to meet their needs because you can. And then it's about supporting them so that when that change isn't there and the world isn't there as they need it, they can cope and they have their own strategies. But you can't force them to do that. You've kind of got to make them comfortable, get them working a way that works for them, find that way. And then as you're getting towards that transitioning into the real world, into college, whatever, is helping them have those skills to be able to shape their own world. Yes. SLCN is always an interesting one, actually, when it comes to transition. You see a lot of children from when we transfer from infant to junior or from junior to secondary. I just love that. And that's another one. We have communication interaction, but we also have SLCN. Yes, speech language and communication needs. And that speech is, uh, is, is that communication pop, but his interaction bits missed off. So let's have another, yeah. Just lots of fun. Oh, but communication interaction is one of the broad areas. SLCN is one of those finer categories from Sense. Yes. But what you will see is a lot of children who received that speech and language input in reception class. So one of the big questions at the moment is that push from the government to introduce Nelly and whatever the other one is into school. So that speech and language input in nursery and reception. Yeah. And you've got Senko's asking, if normally this was an intervention that we put in place for a handful of students, now, if every student is doing it, does that mean they all go on my SCN register? So that goes back to a different podcast. But no, they don't because you're delivering it to everybody. It's only the ones that then need the second dose of it or need a repetition of the information 
or haven't made progress with it that would then go on your SCN register. And my, my thing about the transition is you then seem to end up with those children who have been labelled because, let's face it, somebody has ticked a box on Sims or whatever, Arbor, Broncom, whatever programme you're using, they've ticked that box and then it's not been unticked. So when they transition to their junior school, their junior school teachers think they've got a speech, language and communication need. And when they transition to the secondary school, the secondary school kind of looks at it and goes, what's going on here? Oh, it was the intervention program you used when they were in reception and had a tongue tie and were getting their letters muddled up or whatever. It's quite frustrating from that perspective. I remember reading, I was just seeing if I could find it. I should have taken much more research. And it was someone said something and it was the most bizarre thing I'd ever heard about what is a definition of SEN. It wasn't me, was it? No, no, this was something someone said and I was like, you are so wrong. And they went, look it up. And I looked up and it's and it was a website, which was quite a, I can't remember it was a government one, but it said it. And it was the most randomest thing I'd ever. And it was a definition of what special needs was. And it was the definition of any child who needed something above or an additional. Yeah. Okay. But an example they gave was a child who'd missed two weeks of school. Oh. Because you had to catch them up, that was above an additional. So therefore, while you were doing that, they were technically SEN. They're not them. And I literally just went, no. Because otherwise, every child who is not where they should be think is SEN. That's no. That's not what it's about. No. No. <laughs> that was the most randomest thing. And they looked it up and I looked it up and I was just in shock that that was an example of what it's like, no. Well, I mean, to be fair, I have worked with head teachers who would have used that as a definition because what they want is somebody to look after, monitor, support those students. And their justification for nicking one of my TAs to do it is we can put them on the SEN register. And of course, because your SEN register is supposed to be fluid, children can go on it, they can come off it. My head teachers might, those head teachers I was working with may well have gone, just put them off two weeks then. No, <laughs> that's not what it's about. It should be a sustained need over a period of time. It should be something that is additional to and different from the norm, quotes around the norm. And the norm is more or less your class. Yeah, basically. And if your class is all working at a, let's say, lower level, then it is not different from the norm. My mum used to say, because there's a whole thing about every child needs an IEP and all this lot. And my mum was working at a special school and she says, if you plan correctly, no one needs an IEP. Because if you plan, you basically, if you write your plan for your class, you need the IEP for those who don't fit in your plan. Yes. So if you plan, maybe more varied and wider, and you could include every child in that, then there was no actual need to write IEPs. Yeah. She's but then the world went, every child needs an IEP with three targets for English, maths and blah, blah, blah. And we went down a whole rabbit hole of pain of IEPs and misunderstanding. But yeah, with, with the diagnosis, it is for me the best, most useful labels, not diagnosis, but most useful labels are those which help you find out more. Yes. 
So going back to those very first ones of your child has dyslexia, your child has dysgraphia, your child might have ADHD. All of those allow you to go down a rabbit hole of research and find out more. Yeah. And it's everyday common language. So when we're working with parents, we have enough flipping acronyms and all the other bits and business that go on with things. And we have lots of terminology that parents don't understand. And if we want to work with them and get them on board, it's no point sitting there talking about their phonological deficits. We need to say they're struggling with reading or they're struggling to access sounds. We need to be common everyday language with them. And ADHD is now part of common language. We, we know about it. We've got celebrities who claim to have it. So people understand it. And you can start to make those links. And not I don't mean that they understand it fully and comprehensively. None of us ever understand anything fully and comprehensively. But it gives parents that kind of, and teachers, starting point like you say it it is somewhere to start from as long as it doesn't get boiled down to a checklist of five items because we still need to recognize that everybody is an individual within that possibility of that label yes and also you might have only just found their first label yes oh yes Now, I had a young lady, and I I love this young lady to bits, who, when I walked into the school, she was textbook female autism. Textbook. She walked on her tiptoes. She spoke in a whisper. She clung to the walls as she walked around the building. She very rarely engaged with anything educational. She would go to a lesson, but she would literally just sit there. She struggled with reading. She struggled with writing. She could not give you eye contact. She was very picky with her foods. She she was very underweight for her height. Hated having her hair cut. Actually, so do I. But, you know, it's she was typically textbook autism. And we went down that route of securing an autism diagnosis for her. So parents were not incredibly educated. They hadn't gone down anything. She was just quirky to them. She was a little bit different. She was their eldest child, so they didn't have anything to compare to. Supported the parents. We supported the pediatrician appointments, supported them with education psychology, speech and language, all of those things. And we secured a autism diagnosis for her. I would also say alongside that, she was probably dyslexic, but we didn't go down that route. So comorbidity there, she probably had the dyslexia that went with it, but we decided we didn't need it because we'd got the autism label that kind of explained what was going on anyway. I met her probably about Seven years after, she was in her early 20s by that point, and she was tattooed. So there wasn't any problem with cutting the hair at that point. She had had it trimmed. She had got tattoos all over her. She sat and had a long conversation with me. She was bubbly, effervacious, effervescent even. She was just so different. And it boiled down to the fact that it was nothing to do with an SCN diagnosis. And this is going to sound quite distressing to some listeners, but she was actually being abused. 
And her reaction to it was to retreat inside herself and almost try to hide herself. So she was starving herself so she'd become thinner so that people couldn't see her. She was clinging to the walls because it was safe near the walls because nobody could creep up behind her. She did have tight ankles, which was what was causing her to walk on her tiptoes. I don't dispute that there was probably an element of autism still in there, but we put our blinkers on and that was all we could see at the time. We just saw this student with a characteristic set of needs that were related to autism. And we just didn't actually explore out there with what else could be causing it. But sometimes as you, you get that first diagnosis, oh, yeah. you get that first identification of need and go, right, we're going to do this, 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 this. And you start on that route and, and that student responds and you implement strategies and they're now doing things. And then what can often happen is they'll go off in a different direction and I've heard some people say, does helping them with their autism make this worse? It's like, no, no, it was just hiding behind the autism. The autism is what you saw. Yes. That's what you presented. You saw these things, you went, ticks a lot of boxes. We'll work on that. And as that comes down, you are left with what's behind that. And it might have been until you started on those things and started trying to change those and deal with those the next bit might not have been, you might not have been aware. No, and that was exactly it with my young lady. Uh, she was in year 11 at the time. So we secured the diagnosis around about February, March of year 11. Not to say we hadn't been putting support in before that, because obviously she did need a high level of support. But once we got the diagnosis, we became a bit more focused with that support, which is if we'd have had her for another three or four years, we might have discovered the other reasons for things. We just didn't get the chance at that point. But yeah, you're right. As soon as you start putting in the interventions, I remember we had a young man with reactive attachment disorder or difficulty is probably called now, or it's probably called something entirely different to be fair because the names change every day. He, that was his official diagnosis, RAD, reactive attachment disorder. And we knew that and we were putting things in place to support that. But actually, as you started to put things in place to support that, you discovered that mm, there's a bit of ADHD in there too. We need to do this. And as we started to support the ADHD and the reactive attachment disorder, there was a bit of, mm, I think there might be an element of autism lurking in here. <laughs> and you start to investigate that one. They're all labels. And, you know, we shouldn't have to give children labels, but it helped us to understand what we needed to do to support him next. Where do we need to go? All of those labels fit under that neurodiverse banner. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. Neurodiversity is, apparently, I don't realize it's a newish phrase, 20, 30 years old, that term, new phrase in terms of phrases. So it's a newish phrase, but it is a huge umbrella because yes. you've got the autism, the ADHD. Generally, anything beginning with dis goes under that umbrella. Then there's variations. You get the PDA, the ODD, yeah. all of these other acronyms fit under there. And what, what you'll generally find is they're not lovely silos. The child is somewhere in this big umbrella. It's like a really complicated 3D Venn diagram. 
and that child or that person is at a spot, and that could be in four of those things. But in reality, that could come up with those four together. We could come up with a new acronym. Yeah. And that's the thing. So sometimes we get too many acronyms, and sometimes I think it's like, I can't remember if PDA and ODD are, I think they're quite similar, but it depends on your other diagnosis and things like that. So it just gets very complicated. It, it always gives us a bit of this is where you start. It's not where you end. Yeah. This is where you start. And as we always know, you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't know PD, PDA exists, you're not going to look for PDA strategies. No. But you also is you're going to ask children, a child to respond and they only know what they know from their own experiences. So if they struggle with this and no one else does, they don't know that. They just think everyone else is best for them. They're just rubbish and things like that. So it's not until you get older and you start having more of these conversations where you're going, can you do this? You're going, yeah. Ah. But as a child, you just think everyone is the same but you're just bad at it or good at it. So you might think you're rubbish at football because of this. What you can't realise is you are short-sighted and the world is blurred or whatever. And that's the reason you're rubbish at football because you can't actually see the ball where everyone else can really see that ball crystal clear. And there's just so many little things like that that until someone points something out. So my daughter was sitting in going, why, why, why is he writing like that I can't read it and the woman what you can't read that's how my daughter found out she needed glasses until she commented to her friend who could read the board perfectly she went oh and that's the thing until you do that little comparison yourself which generally comes later in life not when you're seven or eight you can see there's a difference with you and someone else so if you don't know the difference between someone else and someone's asking you are you different to everyone else you can't answer. So, and then you, you guys think I, I filled in some surveys recently. You're asking me a question, and I'm looking at you going, Well, I can go to polar opposites. It's how I feel. Then I do stuff so I can do the other way. And that's the thing. So, the whole strategy is that a child might be struggling with things internally, and that presenting is very different. So, we've, Abigail talked to me previously about how many diaries she keeps, uses to keep herself organized. So if she turns up to every single appointment you ever have with her and she never misses anything, you would say she's extremely organized. But in reality, she's not, but she's put amazing strategies in. And I do similar things. I have my email calendar. I have my calendar on my phone, but I will spend probably, sounds odd, but three hours a week looking at my upcoming calendar and thinking about the events. So I make sure I've got all the things I need and I'm prepped and stuff. And I lose three hours a week looking at my calendar or so just to make sure. But other people don't know I do that. And so we don't know, as you said, that that girl which you saw those behaviors as being autistic, she was doing it to hide. So you see the what, not the why. Yes. Yes. And we do that so often in education. There's a child kicking off at the back of the classroom, kicking off in quotes, of course. And your instant reaction is, they're doing it against me. Yes. You take it personally. So you're the English teacher. You're trying to deliver your fantastic lesson on Romeo and Juliet because we know how much Dale loves Romeo and Juliet. And 
you, 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 you've put all your passion into planning this lesson that's going to be really exciting. I mean, we're going to talk about Benvolio and whoever else is involved in that because I can't remember. And you've got a child who's really being annoying. They're fidgeting, they're shuffling their desk, they're pushing the papers on the floor, they're, they're talking, they're talking over you, they're disrupting the lesson, they're flicking their pen. And you as a teacher are thinking, hey, hold on a minute. I want to teach my lesson. I, I want to deliver this. You are doing so you are doing something to stop me from doing that without actually thinking, why is this child doing that? Why is Dale flicking his pen and fidgeting and interrupting me? Is it because he needs to move? Does he need the toilet but doesn't want to say it? Is it because he doesn't actually understand what I'm saying or he can't hear me properly? I once had a student who I wasn't aware and his parents weren't aware. He'd got really bad glue ear. I was teaching year two at the time. He'd got really bad glue ear. So he's, he'd got earache and he was niggly, but he couldn't hear me properly. He was one of the ones who sat towards the back of the classroom. because That was his seating plan. That's what I'd inherited. I hadn't moved them. When we sat on the carpet, his carpet square just happened to be further back from me. He was constantly annoying everybody else. I wasn't thinking about the why, though. It was that instant kind of, why are you disrupting my lesson? You are disrupting my lesson. Not, why are you disrupting my lesson? You don't get the chance to think about it sometimes. And if you can just take that step back, take that breath and go, okay, why? It may, <laughs> I literally just did that. And you, you, why are they doing that rather than what are they doing? Are they just doing it to annoy me? Because they're not. I mean, children, inher humans inherently want to please. They don't want to annoy. One thing, at primary school, it is, there can be things like that. But I think as you get into secondary school, especially as they get older, you've now got people who you're trying to teach to think for themselves. So you've got a year 10 child, me, obviously a bit younger, at the back of the class or wherever I sat, fidgeting and I'm bored of Romeo and Juliet. Because for me, for my year 10 brain, I have no, I will never return to Romeo and Juliet. You're making me sit through a term. I know every time I go to English, we're going to read this book and do some stuff in it. I don't understand it because it's written in oldie-worldie Shakespearean language. What am I going to get from it? What am I doing? I'm never going to use this again in my life because I'm going to go into computing. Why should I bother? Yeah. yeah. And you might be someone who loves Romeo and Juliet. You might go and watch a Shakespeare play it a couple of times a year and love it. That's lovely for you. But in reality, the reason you're teaching it to me is because the government is telling me to, you <laughs> to. Not you are telling me to. The government is telling me to. You enjoy it. That's your thing. But for me, as a year 10 child, I'm going... Why? And I'm going into computing. What happens if I was going to be, if I wanted to be a builder like my dad, or if I'm going to go into that? Or why do I need to pay attention to this? And I think as children get older, I think that part of them gets stronger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's nothing about you, it's where they see their life going and the relevance of what is happening right now are often completely disconnected. And if you say, well, you'll need this for your GCSEs, I'm still going, 
I don't need my GCSEs, but also I, but yeah, there's a whole why is that in the gym? And you might say, oh, it's a lovely book. It's well-written. It's, I don't care. It's not useful. I don't think in the real world, most of my learning, my English skills started coming from me in the last 10, 15 years as I've been writing blogs and presentations and things like that and documents for websites and writing websites. Yep. That's where most of my English skills created. Not when I was at school because I didn't see the relevance or the point. Ironically, multiplications tables, I didn't learn them until I was in my mid-30s. And it was only because, and this is going to sound awful, it was only because I was having to teach times tables to children where they were being tested on them on a weekly basis and they were actually faster than me at doing them. <laughs> but prior to that, I, I'd always counted on my fingers. My parents had given me a, a strategy, a skill. So if I wanted three fives, I would count five, 10, 15, or three, five, three, six, nine, 12, 15 on my fingers to get to the answer. I didn't need to know three fives is 15 straight out like that. So I didn't learn them and I couldn't see the, but I remember being at junior school and my teacher sending me home every week with times tables to learn to be a test at the end of each week. I couldn't care less. I couldn't see the point. (laughs) No. And that's the the thing. I think that's something teachers forget is I think at primary school, generally what you're learning is generally quite interesting but you're not at that age, you're not really questioning the relevance. It's when you hit that secondary school, you'll start to question that relevance. And just talking to my daughters about the school, they don't understand certain parts. Some bits, they have fun. So drama, they do some plays and you literally ask, what did you do? They did this. Okay. What is it you're even getting out of this, but they're enjoying it and they're doing it and they're diving in other stuff. They do. I don't understand. And they're bored. And it's, I think it's in some ways you can kill a love of something by forcing it on someone in that way. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I always think of maths teachers when I think of this because um, I have a, a bit of a history with maths teachers. Um, but maths teachers tend to be very good at maths. They've gone and done secondary maths teachers, this is. So they, they've gone and done a degree in maths. Let's face it, most of us can't even pass A-level maths and struggle with GCSE maths. But they've gone and done degree-level maths, and then they've trained to be a teacher. They have a passion for maths. Yeah. They are good at maths. They do not understand why Dale or myself or little Fred sat in the corner do not get it. <laughs> They find it really difficult to come down to our level. I find that those teachers who have struggled with something themselves are much better yep. at putting it across to students because they know there's more than one way to skin a cat, if you like. There's more than one way to get to the answer. And it isn't necessarily going to be as easy as three fives or 15. I'd like to say I have my uh, GCSE maths. Well done. So do I. I actually have A-level maths as well, to be fair. So do I. And uh, that's where I really fell out of love with maths. Prove this formula. Why? Why? <laughs> why? We're doing this really rearranging formulas at a really complicated level, and I don't know why I need to. I love the stats. I love the mechanics. But the pure maths. Yeah. Why? Why? And I think my teacher was one of those people who loved it. 
but he couldn't. And he might be doing the things that he finds interesting now, but it's at remembering to go. It's really hard to remember. And you, you see this with any interest. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you, if you're getting into golf and you get your first clubs, someone will berate you for having the wrong clubs and stuff and tell you something. And you're literally going, I've no idea what you're about. It's, it's people forget what first got them into that at the beginning. Yeah. If you can somehow find a way to work out what got you into mass when you were young, that's your key to getting someone else into mass, not what you find interesting now. Now, going to um, languages for a second, there's a word used in maths, which was also used in SEN, and they both have very different meanings. Differentiation. <laughs> Yes. And I'd done A-level math, so when I went into teaching and I, I first read my little bit about differentiation, I'm sitting there thinking, seriously, I've got to do that with my students? So if they can't do two plus two, I've got to do differentiation with them. <laughs> it absolutely confused me. So differentiation, if I remember correctly, is... In my head, I've got something about the area under the graph. Yes. I can't remember anything now. Yes, cool. <laughs> If you've no idea what I'm on about, draw one. Remember those old graphs with the Y and the X axis and you plot it all out? The, yeah, do that. Yes, or the gradient or something, or one of them was something. And I, yeah, I, I liked that level of maths. When we went past that, I really couldn't see the relevance and I probably wasn't the best student again. But I love maths, but I like playing with numbers at a simple level, which is practical. If you give me a challenge which I can see the relevance of, I will go and solve that challenge. Um, if you get a bit too complicated and I can't even get my head into it, I'm not going to. But yeah. <laughs> Off it's a tangent. It's practical. Anyway, that's a very big tangent uh, that we didn't even need to go anywhere near. But. Of course, it was a tangent about maths. It was a tangent before it went in English and Romeo and Juliet. But. I suppose for me, it was things like with ADHD and that person reacting to you. That's where we started. They're not reacting to you as a person. They're reacting to the, the fact they cannot conform in the way the government wants. The fact they cannot turn up with the two black pens, the two red pens, the highlighter, the correct shoes because they find them uncomfortable they're, they're, they don't have that, I don't know what sense, sense of how hot or cold they are. There's probably a word for that. So they're, they're, I, think, I almost said that one. I went, it's probably not. But it's the idea. So they might be hot because they've got their jumper and their blazer on. And someone says, look, just take your jumper off. You'll... There's a load of reasons why that child might be reacting. 99.999% of the time, it's got nothing to do with no, you. No, they're reacting to their environment and the stimulus within that environment. And that goes back to our medical and social model. It's not necessarily to do with their ADHD. It's to do with that environment that we're presenting their work within. So can we make it relevant for them? Can we make Romeo interesting without being ridiculously silly and dressing up as Romeo? There is a place for that, but we don't need to do that. But I don't think you can make it interesting for probably not. No, but uh, you know, sometimes we just have to go, okay, and that's why. So, we, I did a couple of uh Shakespeare's, what do you call it? The um, Midsummer Night's Dream, that's the one I found quite entertaining. Good. What well, my youngest son is named after a character in there, not bottom. But I say <laughs> you called your son bottom, <laughs> he's my youngest bottom. 
But the one I actually liked, which I really enjoyed, I think it was a story called The Signalman. Okay. Which is a bit of a spooky short story. And I can't remember who wrote it or anything, but I enjoyed that story. It was, I could just read it on my own and I could visualize it in my head. I didn't have to get someone to translate the words for me or anything like that or anything. It was a really nice, simple, short story. If you haven't read it, it's quite a nice little one. And I liked that, but I really fell out of love with learning during secondary school for various reasons. I went to college and I really fell out of it. My attendance was 20% on average for two years and I still got A-levels. Slightly higher than mine. I really just didn't see the point. And then what's really interesting is I was probably a horribly arrogant child. I know, I know I was. I got called arrogant by teachers. So I probably was really horrible to teach. And I don't think I was rude to the teachers. Again, so from my point of view, I don't think I was ever rude to a teacher. I was just bored. Yeah. So that thing, I can tell you, I was never rude. You might have felt like I was, but I was never rude. Thing is, all I have done since I left college is learn. I will absorb in whatever I'm interested in, I will absorb information. It's like short circuit input. I will just absorb and learn and go off and can teach others about it. Yeah. And I will really get a good understanding of it. I will do that and I will go and do it. So creating this, when we started doing the podcast, that was six months of me learning about podcasting and doing all this research and I loved it and I will learn. I, and my learning and everything is so much better because I have a purpose and I have a reason. From a, a Senko perspective, it's, so I finished my last full-time Senko role, if you like, six years ago. So I've had the last six years where I've been able to go up and down the country into hundreds of schools. And I have learned so much in that time. I have had so much CPD and training and experience of different things and learned so much. And it is, it was, it's all within my passion set. It's all within those things I want to do and I want to learn about. But I never had time to do it when I was actually doing the role. I think that every Senko needs the opportunity to have a sabbatical for a year to actually just go out and do exactly what I do at the moment, which is go into schools and support other schools or go in and, and just experience life in another school because they would come back as a much more rounded individual and, and know far more about SEN needs and how to meet those needs and have lots and lots of different ideas which has nothing to do with labels, but would help you to identify those students and identify how to support them best. Because you've, you've just had that. And like I said, it's that learning. And it's because I now want to do it. I've got, and I've got the opportunity and the time to do it. I think that's the other thing, isn't it? We, we, we don't, by the time we get around to the point where we want to do something, everything else has taken over and we haven't got the time or the money to do it. Cool. So let's wrap up with those three levels of labels. We've got the census ones. Use them just for the census and getting money. (laughs) Broad areas of need is organizing your support you are giving into areas. Yeah. So how are you supporting him, this child? That's kind of how I see those four broad areas. That's their limit. Yeah. It's, 
how are you supporting this child? Well, we're doing this over here. We're doing this here. We're doing this here. We're doing this here. And it helps you see into group that support you're doing. But the most important, the most useful, most dangerous are those kind of diagnostic labels. They're the ones we should use the most. They're the ones which you've got to just understand that isn't a box. Yeah. It's more like literally every label is more like Mary Poppins handbag. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It might look like a box, but it's bottomless. Yeah. It is bottomless. It's a place to start and go off on one and go and research. And then you realize, well, that isn't them. Well, why isn't that fitting in? And you do research on that and realize there might be a couple of other things coming involved. So yeah, for me, the diagnostic ones are the ones to use. Really only use the others. And I, I see people worrying about which which of the broad areas is SPLD fit into. Why well, have an answer for that? So to me, you always go back to what is your additional to and different from. So what is the provision you are putting in place? If it is addressing communication and interaction, that is where it's fitting. If it's addressing cognition and learning, that is where you're ticking and where you're fitting it. So work out what support you're giving, organise into those four broad areas, and that will tell you. Yeah. Because you might be doing multiple, but it will tell you the main one you're supporting. Absolutely. And what you find is most schools will have cognition and learning interventions and provisions. They don't have an awful lot for communication interaction, SEMH, and very rarely do you find anything for sensory and physical, unless you've got a visually impaired or hearing impaired student. Yeah. You will probably, I think schools should probably have more SEMH. I just think for some people, that's a bit of a black art. (laughs) I think if someone can't do two plus two, you can drop down. Yeah. If someone's struggling with that, you might be going, uh, SMH, I don't know. I'm going to get some external support in. And that's the thing is, especially with SEMH, you really might not have the confidence in, well, what is, I can see they're struggling with that. I don't know why, and I don't know how to, because SEMH is a real one. If, you, if I see uh, Abigail punching someone, my target is not that Abigail shouldn't punch. No. My target goes much earlier in the process of what made Abigail angry to what, what triggered her. And that thing with SEMH is what you see is the behavior. You've got to track it back, which makes it really hard. And that's why you might need to get someone in to really. But that is probably the SEMH is an area which I think the whole of education needs more training on, not just with the uh, green paper and white paper saying, we're going to do these super mental health leads and we're going to pay for their training. And then, yeah, but they need to use that and they need to train the whole school. But there was no anything about that. It was just, we'll get them the qualification to tick a box. I hated that part of the uh, green paper and white paper. And the last thing is, whatever you are seeing, ask, why am I seeing it? because that will help you to dig down and work out what is actually happening. Yeah. There are some people who don't believe that behavior is communication or is an unmet need. It depends on the term of need, but to me, every behavior is communication. And it might be that most behavior, it means that the school system isn't fit for purpose in secondary. But that's a, again, it's a not a personal attack on anyone. It's the relevance of what they're doing compared to what you do in the real world. 
you might hear me touch on that a few times on various podcasts if you rant, get a bit ranty on that one. But it is, it's nothing generally, especially in secondary school, that behaviour is a communication that actually the relevance of what's going on to what they feel their future life will be is a very big thing. So if you just, next time someone, you're, if you're a secondary school and someone does that and you just ask your question, ask the child, yeah, you should ask the child that question and it might open up your world to, yeah, you, you like English, you like Romeo and Juliet, you saw it six months ago, you watched the video, blah, blah you love it. But is it relevant? Does that child feel it's relevant for them? And if you say because of GCSEs, that still might not be relevant for them. So, yeah, things like that. Yes. Right. Let's wrap up. So, thank you for coming to the show today, Abigail. You're very welcome. Um, you've given me a couple of links. One is a book called Learning Without Labels. So uh, that'll be in the show notes, along with Abigail's contact details and her Facebook group. And you'll find the show notes on our website or wherever you listen to this podcast. And thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on the subscribe button. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for The Sendcast and you'll find us. And as always, let's talk about B-Square because we are all about supporting SEN and showing progress. So if you are struggling to show progress, please have a look at the B-Square website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of content for different ages, different abilities for England, for Scotland, for Wales. So if you're talking about any of those acronyms, whether broad areas, diagnostic or census, we have content for you. So. It's all about our content being specific to that age and that level of ability, not just one big thing. You can find about our online training courses, our conferences. You can read our blog, watch me on my webinars. It is all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. And don't forget, you can always drop me an email. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.